Our second reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came. And attended him. Thank you very much, Ellie. We're continuing our series of people who Jesus met. We started with Jesus meeting a vicar, as in Nicodemus, and then an Israelite, Nathaniel, and last week, a foreigner, the centurion of Capernaum. This week, someone slightly different. Jesus meets the devil. A good reminder this week, just in our title, that the devil is a real person, not a fairy tale fiction, not an impersonal evil force, but a real, actual evil person, called by the Bible the enemy, the father of lies, a roaring lion, the deceiver, many titles, and also revealed in this passage to be a powerful evil person who appears at will, who transports himself and Jesus apparently instantaneously from place to another, and somebody who can summon up visions of the whole world. Jesus may have encountered many demons in the course of his earthly ministry, often to cast them out of people, but this is an encounter with none other than the prince of demons himself, a key passage for us to think about. Now, it's interesting as we initially come to this that the devil didn't start out by physically assaulting Jesus. He didn't uh, come across the Son of God and think, I'm going to bash him over the head with a stone or take him out with a chainsaw or uh, in a sort of gunslinging shootout. He didn't go for anything quite so crude as his first line of attack. He did eventually resort to crude physical tactics in nailing Jesus to a cross. But initially... It was spiritual temptation. That was his first line of attack. Perhaps because he knew that if he undermined Jesus on that front, he'd actually win the war entirely. It was 
Jesus' spiritual righteousness, his rightness, that allowed him to be the perfect sacrifice for sin, dying the righteous for the unrighteous. So if the devil undermines him on this front, if he tempted him and managed to make him sin, he had removed the entire plan of God for salvation. This was his first line of attack. And in many ways, that remains the devil's first line of attack against us today. Jesus warned us, don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I warn you, fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Jesus is saying, don't just think materialistically, as we're so inclined to do in our current culture, but think spiritually. Are we conscious that Satan's main arsenal against us is spiritual? Are we conscious of temptation to sin being the front line in the war against him? We looked at this passage this morning with the Pathfinders. It's a wonderful time together. And it was interesting, at the beginning of the session, we thought about what we immediately think of when we think of the devil. And we went round and we thought of Well, we think of somebody with horns and a forked tongue and a trident and a pointy tail and a red cape. Essentially, the pantomime villain version of the devil. But that very physical incarnation of the devil is far too obvious. That's not the guise he comes at initially. His key weapons are spiritual temptations to test God, to redirect worship, to be proud over attainment and position. He brings the weapons of temptation to envy others' possessions and experiences, to blend our worship of God with worship of other things, and to take the Christian life easy. Those sort of weapons in his arsenal are much more powerful than a pitchfork, a pantomime weapon. In fact, Satan may come to us often dressed, the Bible says, as an angel of light. He might look entirely like a noble crusading politician with a moral mission, or indeed like a holy ecclesiastical figure. He's unlikely to come to us dressed in the red cape with the trident. So do we think when we are tempted, we're in in the situation of temptation from whatever angle, this is the front line My behaviour here, in this situation, could affect the entire battle line around me. Well, that's enough uh, by way of introduction. Let's have a look at how Jesus himself dealt with temptation in the heat of the moment on that battle line. So the setting is the start of his earthly ministry, uh, just begun the previous chapter in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist has heralded Jesus, he's gone before him. And Jesus came to baptism by him to fulfill all righteousness. And there was a public affirmation at that time by God the Father, uh, through God the Spirit, that this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And the immediate following event is, as we read in verse 1, Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Interesting to note that that was the main purpose of being in the wilderness. He was there to be tempted 
This wasn't just a holiday he was spending in the desert for 40 days, not just a private escape for an introvert who wanted to get away from all these people that were crowding around his baptism, not even a health routine or even a prayer retreat, like a holy purpose to be in the wilderness. But no, a deliberate time of testing. And as part of that, he engaged in a fast, as we read in verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 40 days and 40 nights. That's a long time. That's uh, about as long as any human being can last without food. This is a hard fast he involved in. Often when we talk about fasting, we're thinking about a soft fast. So as in not having meat on a Friday, having fish instead. That's an example of a soft fast. Or uh, not having any food before lunchtime, but then having lunch and having evening meal and so on, and then the following day just ignoring breakfast again. That's a soft fast. Or even like having no chocolate for Lent, which maybe some of us are doing. That would be a soft fast. But this was a hard fast that Jesus engaged in for 40 days and 40 nights. And so he was in a weakened physical condition when the devil came to tempt him. It's often when we are in weakened physical conditions that we are most susceptible to temptation, that we're at our lowest point. So it's when we're tired that we're most at risk of giving in to fits of anger, when we're hungry, most at risk of gluttonous success, when we're feeling flustered and um, pushed and rushed, that we feel most likely to give harsh words that we then regret. Now, it's in this condition that the devil came to Jesus and gave him three temptations. So we read in verse 3 to start with, he says to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Verse 6, a second temptation. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. And then verse 9, the third one. The whole world I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Notice how, with those three temptations, the devil started small. Started just with turning a few stones into bread. Look, Jesus, you're hungry. You've been fasting for almost 40 days and 40 nights here in the desert with nothing around you to sustain you. You know that you can transmute objects into something else. He was about to turn water into wine after all. Why don't you just turn one or two of these few small pebbles into a bit of bread, a morsel of bread, to satisfy your hunger? But Jesus resisted. He answered, verse 4, It's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You might think to yourself, would it have been such a bad thing for Jesus to turn a few pebbles into a bit of bread? Is that a sin? Jesus did many miracles, And they were always for the sake of other people. Healing miracles to cure people of disease and sickness. Casting demons out to restore them to their right mind. Providing even wine at a wedding to keep it going. And even those without an apparent application to help others, like walking on water, were miracles seen by other people in order to bring glory to God the Father. Not something just to satisfy Jesus by himself. So turning stones to bread would be different. It would be completely self-serving. It would be essentially a selfish miracle. It's a temptation then the devil is providing to selfishness. 
And Jesus says, no, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the devil ramps up the temperature with the second temptation in verse 5. He took him to the holy city, to Jerusalem, and set him on the highest point of the temple and said, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's saying, just do a little skydive, Jesus. Just take a little jump. You won't come to any harm, because you are the son of God. He's definitely going to look after you. You know you won't be hurt. And you might pick up some disciples on the way, because everyone, you know, they're there for the festival in Jerusalem. They'll see you jump down from the height of the temple, some hundreds of feet, and you'll be fine. It'll be a great occasion. But did you notice the devil has twisted the verses he's using there? He's quoting from Psalm 91 when he's saying he will command his angels concerning you in verse 6. A psalm, Psalm 91, which is about the spiritual protection that God provides to those who trust in him. And the devil twists them subtly but deliberately to suggest that God will provide physical protection to his son. But Jesus is not taken in by any of that and responds in verse 7. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, the devil, obviously frustrated by that rebuff, turns up the temperature again for the third temptation, the final play, his big hands. We read in verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Well, again, a little physical teleportation going on here, and this panoptic vision of all the kingdoms of the world. Imagine if the world was sort of turned inside out, and instead of mountains going up, the mountains sort of went down. And Jesus is standing on the top of this kind of inside-out world, looking instead of at the stars in the sky, looking at all the nations arrayed around the world. It's as though the world, instead of kind of curving away like this, curved up like this, and Jesus is being shown all of those kingdoms all at once. And the devil says, you can have all of them. You can be supreme ruler over all of this if you simply bow down to me. All of those great empires that have been and that will be, nothing compared to what I will give you. Alexander the Great, nothing. Julius Caesar, nothing. Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Queen Victoria. None of them will rule anything compared to what I will give you. I'll give you all the splendor of the world. It's a travesty and an inversion of reality, isn't it? Because all those nations are rightly Jesus' inheritance anyway. They're not the devils to give. They're God's to give to whom he will, and he wills to give them to his son. That inheritance of nations, Jesus will claim, not because he's been taken in by Satanism, but because he suffered on the cross. And so we read his his rebuke at verse 10. Jesus said to the devil, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We can imagine if this interaction through those three temptations was filmed uh, in a high-budget way, perhaps, 
that there'd be this sort of uh, wonderful rising orchestral score as the temptations built and built and built and became more serious, as the teleportations that the devil was taking himself and Jesus on went to ever more exotic locations from the desert to the temple to the high mountain showing all of the world, and that this final cinematic exchange, this showdown where Jesus ends with those words, Get, but go away, Satan. At that point, perhaps there'd be the revelation of Satan in all of his evil, not clothed as a messenger of light at all, and before he departs, suddenly showing his true colours, before suddenly returning to the quietness of the desert and to the angels ministering to Jesus, as we read in verse 11. Well, we get a little taster of that sort of cinematic take in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which has a sort of sort of version of this sort of temptation uh, with the temptation of Galadriel at the mirror in Calas Galaton. She's tempted to take the ring of power from Frodo for herself. And she says these wonderful poetic words to him as she's being tempted to take that ring of power. Instead of a dark lord, you would have a queen not dark, but beautiful and terrible as the dawn, tempestuous as the sea, and stronger than the foundations of the earth, and all shall love me in despair. Well, it was something like that vision of power without cost, of triumph without battle, of glory without cross, that was offered by the devil to Jesus. But he knew it was a hollow vision, just as Galadriel, in the fictional version, knew it was a hollow vision of that future glory she was being offered by the ring. She knew that it pretended to offer her power, but actually Sauron, the Dark Lord, he would rule through her. Likewise, in the true temptation which Tolkien based that wonderful fiction on, the temptation of Christ, Jesus knew the devil would actually be the victor. It might look like he was ruling the world, but actually the devil would rule through him if he surrendered to that final temptation. And so he says, again, verse 10, away from me, Satan. The conclusion for the the Tolkien version was, I pass the test, says Galadriel. I shall decline and go into the West and remain Galadriel. Well, again, Tolkien's inspiration was straight from Jesus, who, rather than taking the uphill road to power and glory immediately, at the hands of the devil, instead took the downhill road to suffering and to the cross and the grave. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we reflect on this passage, I think there are three things I'd like to draw out about Jesus's reaction to the temptations. Three take-homes about Jesus's righteousness. Righteous is a word that sometimes in modern culture comes across very badly. People might say, oh, so-and-so, they're being all righteous and so on, as though they're being a goody-two-shoes, self-important, almost preachy. Or, why do you have to be so darn righteous all the time, being so irritating? But in the Bible, righteous is a wonderful word, a good word, not at all a bad thing. It means not simply sinless, 
but also having moral perfection. So firstly, I think we see Jesus' righteousness on show here, perhaps most obviously, in his sinlessness. As we've seen, he resisted temptation again and again and again. Transmute these stones into bread to satisfy your hunger? No. Throw yourself down? You'll be caught? No. Worship me and you'll have all the kingdoms in the world? No. Jesus was descended from many kings of Israel via his adoptive father Joseph, which Matthew records a few chapters earlier at the start of his gospel in the prologue. David and Solomon, Rehoboam and Abijah, all ascendants of of Jesus. None of them passed the test. None of them resisted temptation in this way. None of them were sinless. David had an affair with Bathsheba. Solomon went after many foreign wives who turned his heart after foreign gods. Rehoboam abandoned the council of the old men and split the kingdom in half. Abijah walked in all the sins of his fathers before him. King after king after king sinned, sinned, sinned. But now, a descendant of them, a king who resists temptation perfectly, who doesn't sin, who is righteous. At last, a king who might lead his people not into sin with him, but into righteousness and glory. As the author to Hebrews says, Jesus, in every respect, tempted as we are, yet without sin. There's a king we can follow. There's a king who will not lead us into destruction. There are so many public figures and leaders today who disappoint us, who start out looking good, who start out looking like they might be a good person to follow, and just turn out to be disappointments. A human rights campaigner who turns out to be neglectful of his marriage, someone who helps animals, who turns out to be guilty of sexual assault, someone who helps chronically ill children, who is guilty of sexual abuse, someone who seems to be a wonderful Christian leader and turns out to be guilty of physical and spiritual manipulation. So many disappointments in leaders in our world. And all of us suffer from the same sorts of failures, perhaps on a smaller scale, in less obvious ways, but in thousands of different ways. There's only one who is the sinless, righteous ruler who never disappoints, and that is the Lord Jesus, as as, is seen most perfectly, perhaps, in this temptation by the prince of demons himself at his lowest point physically. Secondly, Jesus' righteousness is shown in his defense against the devil, Man shall not live by bread alone, he said. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Items of his own homespun wisdom, made up on the spot? No. Bible, 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 all the way. Those are quotations directly from Deuteronomy. Jesus was not simply free of sin, but he was also full of scripture. He really did, as he said in the quotation himself, live by the word of God. He had a complete defense against all the temptations the devil could throw at him 
And they were all taken just from one small section of one book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. Just imagine what Jesus could do with the full panoply of the word of God, which doubtless was also at his disposal. As well as being a wonderful reminder of the content of the Saviour's mind and spirit, it's also a good jog to us to think about scripture memorization and being able, in a small way, following in his lead, to have the word of God in our defense as well when temptations come. We always have a verse of the month going, printed on the top of our service sheet and on a slide at the beginning of our services. Good practice, perhaps, to use that verse of the month as a memory verse of the month and think, I can probably cope with memorizing one verse per month. This month's verse, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. A fairly short verse, and maybe we could challenge ourselves uh, in the next week or two to try and remember that uh, before the month, well, the month expires quite soon, doesn't it? But in the next day or two anyway, I think to try and put that to mind before the month expires. And thirdly, finally, Jesus' righteousness is shown in this passage in his fulfillment of scripture. So we've said there's only one sinless king, uh, Jesus, the true king. But there's two other types that he fulfills, two other biblical categories that Jesus ticks the box of in this passage. Satan very rarely, as we will probably appreciate, appears in person, turning up in person in some form to tempt somebody. At the most obvious other occasion that happens in the Bible, can you think of it, where he turns up not as a man, but as a snake in the Garden of Eden, tempting Adam and Eve. They fell at that first hurdle, didn't they? But Jesus resists, and in that sense, he is the true Adam. And then who else spent 40 periods of time in a desert, tempted by hunger? Israel who spent 40 years in the wilderness before they entered the promised land, thinking about the wonderful food they had back in Egypt. Well, they groaned and they complained against God about their circumstances. They committed sexual immorality in the wilderness, and they even built a golden calf, an idol, and worshipped it instead of the God who had rescued them in the exodus out of Egypt. Jesus, in his 40 days in the wilderness, by contrast, was sinless. And in that sense, is the true Israel. The true Adam, refounding humanity. The true Israel, refounding God's people. The true king, founding God's kingdom. Which, thanks to his righteousness, has been established and is growing day by day, and of which we can be members by his grace, by faith in him, and by the gift of his righteousness for us. Let's give thanks for that in prayer. We praise and thank you, Heavenly Father, for Jesus' resistance to the temptations of the enemy. Thank you that he stood firm upon your word. Thank you for the wonderful righteousness he displayed. And thank you that he gives that to us as a gift 
that we can share in it with him forever. May we take hold of that and hold it fast forever. Amen.